everybody. Welcome to the Four Pillar Fitness Podcast. This is Coach Phil Houston, as always, behind the mic. And today we have another episode of No Stuff. And today we're going to dig in, um, talk about the rotator cuff, uh, what it does, what it is, how it works, and how it gets hurt, and what you can do about it. Uh, but first, a little bit of housekeeping. If you listen to us on iTunes, do me a favor. If you like what you hear, drop us a five-star rating, leave a comment, let people know there's some value to be had here, something that might actually uh, teach them a few things and help them learn some things. Uh, if you want to reach out to me, you can do, do, do so through the anchor.fm website. Um, it's for hyphen pillar hyphen fitness is the podcast location and feel free to drop me a question or a comment there as well. Now let's dig right in. Um, just about everybody has heard the phrase rotator cuff, but how many of us really know what it is, what it does and why it can be such a pain in the shoulder, but I'm sorry about that. Um, if you ask the average person what it is, they'll likely point to their shoulder and say something like, I don't know, it's up here somewhere. Um, unless, of course, they're one of the two million or so people every year who see a physician with a rotator cuff issue. Uh, those people know exactly where it is. They can follow the pain to its source, after all. Uh, pretty easy for them to see that. Uh, to appreciate the rotator cuff, it helps to begin with the shoulder joint itself. While the shoulder is a ball and socket joint, it's a bit unusual. The ball in the question is humorous, but not funny at all. Uh, but I'm, I got a million of these kids. Uh, it's actually the humorous or the upper arm bone. The head of the humerus fits into a loose joint capsule in the scapula called the glenoid cavity. Uh, kind of funky name there. The loosey-goosey nature of the glenohumeral joint, as the shoulder joint is called, uh, makes it the most mobile joint in the body. It also means that these muscles, tendons, and ligaments that, is, that surround it play a large role in helping to stabilize it, control it, and allow movement in that unique joint. Uh, the glenohumeral, or GH joint, is capable of true circumduction like no other joint in the body. In other words, it can allow your arm to make a full circle uh, with very little deviation in planar angle. Uh, pretty cool, and it's, it's really unique that way. Uh, in theory, the hip can do it too, but it's not quite as, as free to go ahead and do that. Um, the GH joint is surrounded by numerous muscles, tendons, and ligaments. Uh, all three deltoid muscles, the pectoral, biceps, and triceps all cross this joint in some way. Uh, numerous other structures play varying roles in the stability and movement that happens at the glenohumeral joint. Um, the rotator cuff is one of these structures. In fact, you could say it's the structure in the shoulder. Uh, the rotator cuff keeps your arm in the socket, like literally keeps your arm in the socket. Pretty important, not something you want to tear or have it become dysfunctional. Uh, there are seven scapulohumeral muscles or muscles connecting the scapula to the humerus. Four of these comprise the rotator cuff. They are the supraspinatus, the infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis. The acronym SITS, S-I-T-S, is often used to identify and remember the group and their names. Uh, the four muscles originate on the scapula and insert on the head of the humerus, uh, forming what looks like a cuff around the head of the humerus. You can imagine a series of rubber bands holding a golf ball on a tee that it sits on. You can get a reasonable idea of how the rotator cuff works. In our example, no matter which way you try to move the ball, the rubber bands keep it connected to the top of the tee. Um, it's an imperfect analogy, but it actually visually works really, really well. So if you think about that, when you abduct your arm and move it away from your body, the rotator cuff compresses the glenohumeral joint. This is known as concavity compression, and it prevents the humeral head from sliding upward and out of the glenoid fossa where it sits in the joint. Fossa is spelled F-O-S-S-A, for those of you who would like to know. This lets the large deltoid muscles exert more pressure on the humerus to lift the arm even under external loads. This tightening of the GH joint also prevents pinching of tissues during shoulder movements. Um, as the name implies, the rotator cuff is involved in, well, you know, rotation. Uh, the subscapularis is a strong internal rotator. Think of turning your arm so your elbow points forward 
and your thumb points backwards. It also helps decelerate external rotation of the humerus. Both of these functions is important or are important to baseball and softball players, to swimmers and racket sport players. The subscapularis is the most often used muscle in the entire shoulder complex. The supraspinatus abducts the humerus or lifts the arm away from the body. If you make a T with your arms, you're giving your supraspinatus a workout. It is also involved in shoulder traction. This is when your shoulder tightens to maintain integrity when you're carrying heavy things at your side, like a suitcase, a dumbbell, kettlebell, anything that weighs you know, a considerable amount of weight or any weight for that matter. Um, the infraspinatus is two-thirds fleshy muscle and one-third comprised of tendon, one-third is comprised of tendinous fibers that form the infraspinatus tendon. It's involved in external rotation of the humerus. Think of turning your arm so your thumb fa thumbs face backwards. You're rotating your arm outward so that your thumb faces backwards and your elbow is open to the sky. It also assists in deceleration of internal rotation of the humerus such as that which occurs at the end of throwing a ball or swinging a tennis racket. Sports injuries are really common in this particular muscle and tendon group. The last of them, teres minor, is also involved in external rotation and abduction, moving the arm toward the body of the humerus and deceleration of internal rotation. It lies alongside the infraspinatus and may be interconnected by a small number of muscle fibers. This is kind of interesting when you think about the things that they do. Um, the infraspinatus, is involved in external rotation of the humerus, whereas the teres, um, teres minor is involved in external rotation of the humerus as well, and adduction, so pulling the, the muscle, the arm in. So those two muscles being con connected somehow by some fibers kind of makes some sense. Um, all these muscles and tendons are lubricated by a little guy named Bert who runs around the shoulder joint greasing stuff with a little oil can. All right, I was just checking to see if you're still awake right there. Actually, there is a small sac called a bursa, that sits between the rotator cuff and the acromion. I don't think it's named Bert though. Uh, the acromion is a bony process on the scapula that extends laterally across the shoulder joint or from the middle out. Um, the bursae release synovial fluid to let your rotator cuff tendons glide smoothly during movement. Injury to the rotator cuff can often result in inflammation of the bursa sac. A condition is called bursitis. You probably heard your grandfather talk about his bursitis. He may or may, may not have it, but his shoulders might be hurting him We'll talk more about that in a little bit. So how do rotator cuff injuries happen? You know, based on news reports and complaints from sports fans, you'd think they were largely the bane of pitchers and other pro athletes, but that's really far from the truth, kind of. In reality, most frequently, it's just old guys who get rotator cuff injuries the most. Okay, not just old guys, but older people. Um, age seems to be the most significant influence on your risk of a rotator cuff tear. But let's back up a second because there's actually two different kinds, primary kinds of rotator cuff tears, acute and degenerative. Of course, there's nothing cute about either one of them, but I'm here all week, folks. Listen, the bad jokes don't cost extra, so just enjoy them. Uh, acute tears occur all at once and may not be preceded by a breakdown in either the integrity or the strength of the rotator cuff muscles or tendons. Skiers and snowboarders who extend their arms when they fall sometimes experience acute rotator cuff tears. It can also happen, believe it or not, if you slip on the ice and put your arm out to support yourself. Acute tears can also happen if you try to lift something heavy by jerking it. We see some rotator cuff injuries among Olympic weightlifters, although simple shoulder impingement is a more common occurrence for them. With overhead movements, the space for the supraspinatus tendon to pass through to attach to the humerus can become narrow during those movements. If the muscles involved in stabilizing the shoulder are weak or tight. So let me say that again. 
With overhead movements, the space for the supraspinatus tendon to pass through to attach to the humerus can become narrowed during the movement if muscles involved in stabilizing the shoulder are weak or tight. Inflammation of the bursa in the shoulder may also contribute to this problem. These issues are more common in training programs incorporating high volume or high numbers of repetitions. We're gonna cover shoulder impingement in another episode because it's really important if you're, if you're strength training uh, to understand the difference between a real injury, real tear uh, or catastrophic injury and an impingement complex or impingement uh, syndrome. Um, acute tears may also happen in conjunction with other shoulder injuries like separated or dislocated shoulders or broken collarbone. Anytime the shoulder joint is abruptly pulled apart or significantly out of alignment, the rotator cuff is at risk of injury. The majority of rotator cuff tears are not acute, however, but degenerative, happening slowly over time. Certainly one incident may be the thing that causes the tear, or what I refer to as the event horizon, but the breakdown in strength and integrity of the, bone, of the tendons and muscles of the rotator cuff is the real underlying reason. Interestingly, interestingly, those who experience a degenerative rotator cuff tear in one shoulder are actually at a higher risk of a tear in the other. This is true even if the individual has no pain or symptoms. Rotator cuff tears are more common in the dominant arm, since this is the one that we usually use to reach overhead or to perform, perform movements that extend the arm and force the rotator cuff to function. So we'll take a look at some of the factors that contribute to degenerative rotator cuff tears in just a moment, right after this word from our sponsor. Hey, welcome back to the Four Pillar Fitness Podcast. Let's get, in, get on with this episode of No Stuff, the Rotator Cuff. Hey, that rhymes, cool. All right, key factors that contribute to rotator cuff tears include a lack of blood supply. As we age, the supply of blood to the rotator cuff declines. This makes it more difficult for the body to heal even minor non-catastrophic injuries and micro tears. Non-catastrophic means the tendon or muscle wasn't ruptured or completely or significantly torn. Micro tears are tears in a portion of the tendon, sometimes as small as just a few fibers. If they happen repeatedly, the cumulative effect can weaken the muscle or tendon significantly. Improved or adequate blood supply can help prevent this by keeping the cuff healthy, but it gets more difficult with age or with repeated trauma. Another key factor is bone spurs. With age, bone spurs can develop most often on the underside of the acromion or the, the flat part of the scapula. So when we reach overhead uh, or lift our arms, these spurs can grind against the rotator cuff tendons. And this is part of shoulder impingement and can weaken the rotator cuff tendons over time. Uh, another key factor, repetitive stress. When you perform the same movements with the shoulder over and over, you increase your risk of degenerative rotator cuff tears. Sports like tennis, weightlifting, baseball, and even rowing can increase your risk. Jobs like painting, carpentry, or anything that requires significant overhead reaching or lifting can also increase the risk. And the last key factor we're going to cover today uh, for rotator cuff tears is family history. There's a lot of research being done right now into whether there is a genetic component to the risk of degenerative rotator cuff tears. Genetic connection research is very difficult because there are so many qualifying factors in each generation of humans that, has, that potentially has the same genetic predisposition to something. So this research is gonna be very interesting and we'll see, what, see how things come out. <clears throat> so a word about pitchers. Baseball pitchers fall sort of in between the acute and degenerative tear categories. Um, some pitchers may experience acute tears, but it's been argued that most of their tears are degenerative. The tears may be the result of fatigue and weakness in the muscles involved in throwing or in stabilizing the shoulder during dynamic movement. We could probably have a back and forth discussion about whether degeneration occurred as a result of throwing lots of pitches um, and that led to the tear or whether the tear was truly acute, but it would really depend on a specific individual and the specific incidents that happens. The one thing that I think all of us in the strength and conditioning world can agree on 
is that improving shoulder stabilization and strength can greatly reduce the, uh, the risk of either type of tear in pitchers, overhead athletes, and regular people too. So how do you know if you have a rotator cuff tear? It's a good question, but you might not, might not like the answer, or maybe you will. Honestly, I'm pretty okay either way, although I hope you don't have a rotator cuff tear for the record. Just want to put that out there. Does your shoulder hurt at night and at rest? Do you have a dull ache deep in your shoulder? You might have a rotator cuff tear. Does it hurt to lift and lower your arm? Do certain movements make your shoulder hurt? Does it hurt when you reach behind your back or when you wash and comb your hair? Well, you might have a rotator cuff tear. Does your shoulder hurt at night when you're sleeping, especially if you're lying on the affected shoulder? You might have a rotator cuff tear. Does you, do you sometimes suddenly lose strength in the shoulder when you're trying to move or lift things? You definitely might have a rotator cuff tear. Does your shoulder sound a little like a popcorn popper during some movements? It's called crepitus, and it's often a kind of crackling sensation when you move your shoulder. If this is you, you guessed it, you might have a rotator cuff tear. So if you answered yes to at least one of the above, you may want to chat with your favorite orthopedist and have that sucker checked out. The shoulder, not the orthopedist. You can do more damage to your shoulder by ignoring the pain and discomfort. Interestingly, though, there's no evidence of better outcomes with surgery early after the occurrence versus waiting for a while. This is why doctors usually want to try managing your rotator cuff pain and injury with non-surgical intervention like physical therapy. About 80% of people with rotator cuff tears do get, do get relief from pain and improve function in the shoulder, at least in the short term, using non-surgical techniques. Some of these people will eventually need surgery. The problem with non-surgical intervention is that the size of the tear may increase in spite of the treatment. You may also have to limit some of your activities. So if your way of making a living involves overhead work, that may not be an option for you. So some of the non-surgical treatment options include rest. The doc may tell you to take it easy for a while. You may even get one of those cool arm slings. All right, they're not that cool, but they will help protect your shoulder. You may, some, another option is modifying your activities. The stepbrothers would not be happy about this, especially after making bunk beds to make more room for activities. But you'll be avoiding the activities that cause shoulder pain. So yes to model car racing, but no to drumming. Another way of non-surgical treatment is non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, or NSAIDs. Ibuprofen, naproxen, and similar drugs will help reduce pain and swelling. And vodka, but only if you're of age and your doctor or bartender approves. Sorry about that. I snuck that one in there. Uh, another non-surgical treatment option would be strengthening of physical therapy. There are specific exercises that will improve and restore movement and make your shoulder stronger. You'll do stretches that improve your range of motion, or ROM, and flexibility. Getting the muscles stronger that support and stabilize your shoulder should help relieve pain and prevent further injury. Gee, maybe you should have been doing that stuff before the injury. I wonder if that would have helped prevent it. Huh. One of the other non-surgical treatment options is a steroid injection. Easy there, Arnold. Not that kind of steroid. Cortisone has the opposite effect on muscles, stripping away inflammation. It's a very effective anti-inflammatory, but it can have some negative side effects on muscle if used repeatedly or over a long period of time. It's also not effective for all patients. If you try non-surgical options and your pain and symptoms persist for six to 12 months, surgery is likely your best option. The same is true if, you're, if your tear is three centimeters or larger and the tissue around it is relatively healthy, if you have significant weakness and loss of function, or if your tear was caused by a recent acute injury. I guess the next logical question is, how do I prevent a rotator cuff tear or injury? Well, it's impossible to pre prevent all injuries to the rotator cuff, but we can do some things to improve the odds in a really big way. While I'm not going to try to describe 
a lot of very specific types of movements and, and exercises here. I will give you some general things that you can do, general types of movements that are very helpful. Internal and external rotation exercises are helpful. Using bands or dumbbells, moving the arm in, in, in rotating in and out with the elbow in or the elbow out or up even, uh, those can be very helpful. Rowing is a big help, especially when we learn to properly activate the scapular or shoulder blades. I like using bands for this purpose. Bands are portable and they apply increasing resistance as the repetition goes on or the length of the band increases. They're also good for static holds and for stretching. Proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation or PNF activities, it's a big, big phrase, huh? Are also great for improving shoulder stability. However, they may best be used after weight or strength training since they tend to decrease performance in maximal muscle effort activities, including weight training, well, at least according to a 2012 study published in a journal of human kinetics. A good example of a PNF exercise would be if you were to take your right thumb and point it into your left, your left pocket, uh, or your pants, that is, and then reach up and across your body so that it's pointing up in one part of a V and your thumb is pointing backwards towards the wall behind you, almost like you're holding a waiter's tray at the end. So pocket to waiter is one of the PNF movements that we use for improving shoulder range of motion and stability. A surprising exercise that helps with shoulder strength and stability is, drum roll please, deadlifting. That's right, the deadlift has a positive impact on postural muscles, including those in and around the shoulder. Now, I'm not saying that the deadlift will fix your rotator cuff tear or injury, but they may help on the prevention side. And besides, deadlifts, duh. It's nearly impossible in this medium to really explain all the exercises and stretching techniques available to help prevent rotator cuff injuries. There's some good information available on the internet and some not so good. Um, so I would talk to my friendly neighborhood physical therapist, strength and conditioning expert, or even your doctor for some more help. So that's the basics on the rotator cuff, what it is, what it does, how it gets screwed up, how to know that it's screwed up, and what you can do to fix it if it's screwed up and how you can keep it healthy. Um, I hope you got something from today's episode, and I hope you never have to worry about your rotator cuff getting injured. Seriously. This has been the Four Pillar Fitness Podcast and the third episode of No Stuff. If you enjoyed this, let me know. I've got more of this to come. Uh, you can always reach out to me. I'm on, I'm on uh, Instagram, at Coach Phil Houston. Just spell the last name right, H-U-E-S-T-O-N. Uh, on my website, coachphilhouston.wordpress.com, brand new domain name coming very soon. Uh, I'm on Twitter, at Phil Houston. Again, spell the last name right, H-U-E-S-T-O-N. Um, and through any of the Anchor or Apple, Apple iTunes, any of those podcast um, uh, domains, you can also reach me there. Um, once again, I want to say thank you very much. I really do appreciate my audience, and I'm so happy you're here. And as, as always, keep the faith and keep after it.